This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're chatting with Tess Herbert. Tess, her husband Andrew and their family run a 6,000 head cattle feedlot on their property Gundamain at Ugara. Tess is a passionate advocate for the red meat industry and currently holds several leadership positions where she's working on developing innovative approaches to the issues facing Australian agriculture. In today's episode, Tess talks to us about how important goal setting has been in turning their small-scale family farming business into a large employer for the region. You'll also hear Tess talking about the challenges of feedlotting during the drought and floods. And she gives us some handy marketing tips for forward contracts and working out your livestock buy price. She also shares with us her perspective on some of those issues facing Australian agriculture. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Officer Rowan Leach squeezed in this great chat with Tess ahead of the next truckload of stock being delivered into the feedlot. So today I'm here at Gundamain Beef Feedlot with Tess Herbert and... Tess, welcome to the Seeds for Success podcast. Thank you for the invitation. Andrew, your husband, is also your partner in the business and he can't join us today because he was very busy at the sale this morning. So first things first, do you know how you went in the sale? Not sure yet. Normally we'd expect the trucks to be arriving soon because we also have exits this morning. So the cattle coming in from the sale should be arriving within the next hour. We'll launch right into that feedlot stuff in a second, but Can you give me a bit of a rundown of what you do here at Gundamain? So this is a 6,000 head feedlot. We feed for two main markets, a 100-day fed program for Tees, Australia, and a 60- to 70-day fed program for Woolworths. So most of our cattle are procured locally, particularly from Forbes sale and Carcourt sale. But also we're also looking to buy cattle direct from the paddock, from producers who who neighbour us and even a bit further away. Andrew buys every Monday at Forbes sale, but we have contract buyers as well who go to other sale yards who also procure paddock cattle for us. Intergenerational farming family with our eldest daughter back working with us here on the feedlot. And we've been operating on this site on the feedlot for 20 years now. What's the business structure like? You said your daughter's involved? So the management team is essentially myself, Andrew, Caitlin, my daughter, and her partner, Ed who works with us mainly on our properties with the sheep and with our cropping. So that's the management team, but we have second-level management here as well, particularly our livestock supervisor, who's been with us for about 15 years. He's invaluable. And some long-term staff as well who've been with us for quite some time. And we connect with him sporadically, but also in a structured way every Tuesday morning. We have an all-staff meeting, so everyone from the farms comes over to the feedlot and we have a toolbox meeting, essentially to cover things like safety and any other operational issues that are cropping up. So how many staff do you have? So there's about 20 here working most on feedlot, but four out on the properties as well. And so how many properties are you running? Just around the feedlot, there's the main feedlot, Gundamain, and then we have a few more along the river, along the Lachlan River, and then further out nearer to Nanga National Park, 
And then over the other side of town, a large L-shaped place is um, Olive View, about 10 kilometres away. All pretty centrally located. I remember talking to you a few weeks ago and you said you had a property down south or a system down south that you'd just sold? We did, yeah. As of settlement took place on Friday, so the new owners have taken that over. For us, it's a relief that we don't have to be looking after a remote site anymore and travelling down there every week, basically. You've just got that nice and central and haven't spread yourself too thin. Yugara's looking lovely at the moment. I've just come from Forbes. Yugara's to the east of Forbes for our listeners. So what are the soil types like here? There's a couple look uh, sandy loam sort of, but there's some good river country along the Lachlan River. We grow a lot of lucerne along there as well as some cropping. And then it extends. We do have some hilly country, particularly out the other side of Yugara. There's a range, but again, we've got some creek flats along the Mandatory Creek, which are pretty good lucerne country as well. I was the agronomist here a few years ago with Andrew, and yeah, there is wide variety of soil types here in Yugara, but you guys have got some wonderful country. Something Andrew did say to me back a few years ago when I was his agronomist and trying to make sure he grew a big crop was I wanted him to spray out some ryegrass in a paddock of barley. And he said, Rowan, I'm not doing that. I'm here to grow grass. Have you got any comments on that philosophy? Andrew's very production focused. He's particularly interested in how much we can produce for inputs into the feedlot in particular, whether that's grazing cattle or silage or hay or grain or a combination of all of those. So at times we'll put in a grazing crop and then we'll graze animals, then we'll cut it for silage, then we'll see if there's anything left to harvest as well. And with the couple of good years that we've had, it's possible to use them for multiple purposes like that. The focus is on pasture, cropping and inputs into the feedlot. So this is our core business, even though we have sheep, the feedlot remains the core of what we do. We can't grow enough crops to supply this feedlot or breed enough cattle to supply this feedlot. So we rely heavily on the people around us to do that work, but we try and do as much of it as we can ourselves. Growers around here, a big percentage of them will provide you guys with sort of direct chop for your silage and that sort of thing. We do quite a lot of silage ourselves, but we rely also on particularly two or three neighbours for silage most years as well. So you mentioned just before your contracts with Tees and Woolworths. So what's your strategy with contracts and that sort of stuff with the feedlot? So everything's forward contracted. So when Andrew goes to the sale, he will know how much he can spend. We do a break even on our software just to determine what our buy price is. We know our overheads and then we know our forward contract price. So we know what it takes for us to remain in business and what our profit per animal per head will be. So it's a fairly well-managed system. As much as we can control our cattle, two main inputs, cattle, grain, as much as we can control that market and pay for the cattle what we need to make out of it as well. And the companies that we deal with, Cheese and Woolworths, are excellent, again, at knowing what we need to continue in business to be sustainable economically. So they have an understanding of feedlotting and grain-fed beef, and so their forward contracts reflect that understanding as well. They know what the cattle market is. They know what the grain prices are doing. So they have a really clear understanding of what it will take for us to remain doing what we're doing to supply them. You've said that you can't breed enough of your own stock, so you do have some of your own breeding stock? and We do, yeah. So we have a, about a 1,000 Angus breeders out at Island View, and it's something we're interested in doing more of, obviously just commercial breeding at the moment, but 
really interested in looking at some bloodlines in the future. We've got a few that we've got our eyes on that produce really good animals for the feedlot industry, so that's where we would think we'd be going in the near future. Do you have a preference for when you buy it on breed and vendors as well? We do, yeah. Angus cattle. We do have some other heifers out there. We do have a program in the feedlot. Look, when we purchase cattle, we purchase pre-tested, not in calf, but farmers who say, I don't even own a bull, we still end up with some pregnant heifers. If they do calve, we actually send them out onto the properties to keep the heifer and the calf together. And then once the calves are weaned, we can bring the heifer back onto feed. But we, depending on what those animals are like, we can grow them out, the calf, to come back into the feedlot as well later. But there's, so there's quite a few of those heifers growing out at Island View as well as our core Angus breeding herd as well. And so when you're buying young stock from the sale yards, what are you after there, that Angus line as well? Yeah, look, our, our markets have a preference for, we have specific Angus markets, but their preference is for anything rich bred, essentially. Not a great deal of tolerance for anything with any boss indicus input into the markets that we supply. At times there can be some, but look, largely we try and avoid anything with too large a boss indicus content. So our preference in buying is for British bred. And that's look largely Angus or Angus Cross is, again, the preference for what we're looking for. And that's the British breeds. That's because of their early maturity. You're able to get them through and good market specs with fat cover and stuff with those British breads? I think there's a couple of things. I mean, eating quality comes into it, and I'll offend a lot of Bosindicus breeders here, but there is an effect Bosindicus content on eating quality under MSA. So that's just, again, what our markets are telling us. Just a fact of life, that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We're listening strongly to the market signals we've been getting as to breed content. We also do target, as you mentioned before, specific vendors. If, particularly if their animals are healthy and their temperament is good. That makes it much easier on our staff. Because you do use pen riders here and horses? Yeah. We have five or six pen riders at the moment. Really good team, quite a stable team, which we haven't had for a while. And their job's crucial to, they spend two hours every morning riding through and checking every animal. Every animal has to stand. They make sure there's no injuries. Our main issue is respiratory disease. They do get vaccinated for bovine respiratory disease, but we still get some cases where it's a trickle through. So they're like a paravet. Our vet trains them to identify respiratory in the pens. And it's like our analogy is like a person the day before you get the flu when you don't have any symptoms, but you just feel disgusting. And it's we're training them to look for the cattle that just look a bit sad. So the day before they get really sick. How timely at the moment with the current climate and COVID. So that's probably one of your bigger challenges. What are some other challenges in your system? Look, managing those markets that we talked about before, particularly with very high cattle prices. I mean, that's great for producers, but for us buying them in. So further along the supply chain, there's a bit of stress, feedlots and processes to buy in at those prices. Unprecedented, really. And so these wet seasons with high grain prices, high livestock prices, what's been the biggest sort of choke point for you guys? It's often the case historically if you look at the price of cattle and the price of grain, they don't both tend to go up together. So we've been able to take advantage of one or the other. And our grain prices here have been pretty good, reasonably good. Again, in comparison to some parts of the country where feedlots have to access quite expensive grain, but we've been comparatively lucky here. But again, you're never untouched by what's happening in the world. But with global 
grain stocks and grain prices, again, we could be affected by that as well. So our two major inputs, cattle and grain, we're watching those all the time. What they're doing, we're looking at where we can source it from, where we can reduce freight in particular, and where we can maximise the, the type of cattle that we get out the other end. Sorry, and by that I mean compliance with the grids that we're supplying. Some people might see you as a pretty big operation, but you're just as bound by markets and that sort of thing. Absolutely. And whatever the shocks might be that happen in any market, like I'm thinking, you asked me before, and I'm thinking global risks and we've just had the discovery of mouth disease in Indonesia and lumpy skin disease and there's, so there's emergency animal disease risks and there's also price risk as well. Just like other farmers, we're managing all of those at the same time. How much rain have you had in the last few weeks? So it's been really timely though. So we managed to get an oat crop in and then good rain and then managed to get the canola crop in and good rain. So now we're just still on our cereal cropping program and, and a bit of loosen planting as well. We'll finish all of that. So subsoil moisture is great. And again, we're looking at our third year of really good rainfall and at the right time and the right amount, which doesn't happen very often. But for us, we're looking at another good season. So do these wet autumns and winters have an effect on the feedlot? They can do. We have a special program where we really hook in and make sure that the pen surfaces and the drains are pristine before winter, before we get those short days where it's really hard for pen surfaces to dry out properly. And we managed to do that this year. A bit harder last year where we had a wet summer as well, which made conditions more difficult. But so far, so good with pen surfaces and pen management. Um, we do bed with straw, quite a few of our pens, particularly if it's um, lame animals or sick animals, they're all bedded, which makes it easier. So it's important for us that cattle be able to access feed troughs and water troughs because that'll, if they're not able to eat and drink properly, again, they're more susceptible to respiratory or they're not gaining weight. How are some of these challenges different from the drought when prices were probably a fair bit lower for stock but high grain prices? How have you worked through that? It's an interesting question because I can still remember during the drought, again, access to cattle was okay. It was the type of cattle that was a bit of a struggle because, again, we were probably getting more of Boss Indica's content than we wanted. But access to grain was particularly difficult. So we were bringing in grain from a long way away, different states, which was probably somewhere we'd never had to be before. But I think what you learn from those things is that you're looking at your marketplace, you're looking at where you can source your inputs from and you're making those decisions. Can we still, with this as a freight as an increased overhead, can we still make money out the other end? And it was interesting for us having now owning more property, we were making those decisions about on property as well because we were hand-feeding a lot of stock. So again, we make the decision, do we destock, which we did a little bit, but we also decided that we were used to buying in feed for our feedlot and we had those connections. So we continued to buy in feed for our properties as well and to hand feed right through the drought. That was hard, but it was a decision that paid off. Something pretty familiar to what a lot of farmers had to make the decision and you're confident with that decision that you made? I think so. I mean, there's a real challenge about philosophically destocking when you have a breeding herd, that really hard decision that has to be made. Again, we made the decision to do some destocking, but to maintain our core herds of sheep and cattle and to feed them through. And we think that was the right decision at the time. 
you've talked about how much you rely on your buy price and all those sorts of things, your software to calculate exactly where your cut even and your break even prices are. Is that just as important when destocking for a drought? Yes, because the price that you're buying in commodities, you have to think, in, is it worthwhile keeping these stock? We don't know when this is going to end. There's no date that it says you can stop buying hay on this date and you'll be able to feed through. So you, it's a risk and you make that decision based on we're always hoping that the drought will end. But we also know that there will be another one. And everyone you go through, I think you better set up for the next one and you have more options. And I think your decision-making is better every time you come through one as well. So that probably leads me into a good question. You guys make a lot of silage, but you probably use that mostly straight away in your own system. So probably planning for a long-term drought and laying down silage for 10, 15 years' time, probably not something that you guys do much of. We don't do it for that long period of time, but we certainly have three or four years on hand. So we have enough to feed paddock stock as well. And we've also dug pits out at some of the other farms as well, just for silage for the breeding stock. When I turned up today, I was faced with some pretty stringent questioning on my whereabouts and where I've been and what stock I've been handling. Your daughter, Caitlin, had a really tight and extensive biosecurity question list. Obviously, biosecurity is very important to you here. Yeah, it is, right. And we're actually audited under the National Feedlot Accreditation Scheme. So everyone who comes on site is asked the same questions. And they're around your foreign travel, which no one's doing much of at the moment, but also whether you own cattle, whether you have a feedlot production system, your boots, whether you have any mud on your boots. And based on that, your responses to those questions, we do a quick risk assessment on you. I think you probably came out as a low to moderate risk which meant that we could give you access to parts of the feedlot. We probably wouldn't let you wander around in the pens with the cattle. I mean, our highest risk is our vet because he's been on other feedlots, but he mitigates that risk by changing boots, coming in clean. So all of those, there's ways to mitigate the risk as well, particularly if you're aware of biosecurity. That's one of the questions. Do you understand and you're aware of biosecurity too? It's great and it provides that insurance of a disaster happening, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. So if we have an outbreak and our vet does training in emergency animal disease recognition, if we have an outbreak, then they should be able to pick it up quickly and we should be able to trace back who's been on site if that's the source of the biosecurity breach. And so NILS would also sort of provide a lot of that information for you? Yep. Traceability. So again, we're required to have full traceability on the cattle. So each NILS tag Our electronic tag has a visual management tag attached to it in our software so that if you lose the NLIS tag, then we've still got traceability on the database. We can tell them which button's been lost and we can tell them which animal it is and replace the tag. Compliance sounds like a huge deal for you guys. It sounds like also a bit of a headache. How do you overcome a bit of those issues? So compliance with industry systems we don't see as a negative. We actually see it as helping our management. So biosecurity, doing those checks means that not only are we raising awareness, but we can do that traceability that you just mentioned. All of the things that we're audited for and an independent auditor turns up every year also help our customers feel that we're producing safe food that's in compliance with animal welfare standards. It's environmentally. We get questions asked about our environmental management. We're licensed through the EPA. 
So the business doesn't see compliance as a burden. We see it as a way of managing our risks and a way of telling our customers and the community that we're doing the right thing and that someone is checking on us and asking us those questions. So, I mean, it's not as if I'm really jumping for joy when it comes to audit time, but I do recognise that the questions need to be asked so that we can verify what we're producing and how we're producing it. So, for example, if we need to verify days on feed for these cattle because they go out with a delivery docket that guarantees the days on feed, it's a measure of eating quality in some way. So to do that, I need to have really robust software systems that measure days on feed and I need to rely on my staff entering the correct data into those software systems. So it's a process that we're pretty comfortable with and it's a process that over time we've extended to our farms. So the way we manage this intensively, we try and manage our farms in a similar way. Yeah, I guess managing that risk, all you have to do is have a look at the Indonesian feedlot industry and how quickly something can be shut down. It's not just about social licence, it's also about if people have questions about what we do, then we just point to our audit and say, well, we've complied with that or we've, we've been externally audited for this and there are no issues. You've talked about social licence there. I know you're involved in a few leadership positions across the red meat industry. How have they had an impact on what you do? It provides a different perspective because you're given access to particularly policies, industry policies and industry thinking about, for example, in response to an emergency animal disease, what would it look like if yours was the property that disease was discovered on? How would industry react? How would government react? And how would they talk to each other? That's just one example. But it's also getting ahead of the game a little bit, having access to the people who are thinking about the questions that people ask about red meat production, for example, or you're contributing to deforestation or you're, it's not a healthy product or if you want to save the planet, you need to stop eating red meat. And so being involved in initiatives like the Beef Sustainability Framework where we can get all that data together, where we can answer that with data and say that's just not true. So the satellite data that we collected says that we don't contribute to deforestation, that there are gains and losses and we can use satellite data to prove that. We can use stories of farmers on the ground who are doing the work that shows that that's not the case. We can use consumer insights to inform what we do. It doesn't mean that everything we do is perfect and that we don't have to address some things that we could be better at. It just means that we can tell our story a bit more clearly to respond to customers' concerns in particular. So I just want to take a bit of a different direction now. I'll go on to my next topic. I don't want to make too much of a fuss over the success of Gundermain and your feedlot here, but you are very highly regarded in the district for what you've achieved here. You mentioned that you've been farming on this block for 20 years. What did your family business look like 20 years ago? So 20 years ago, we were a mixed farm, small farm, going through a little bit of succession planning. We've been married 30 years with three children. And 20 years ago, I left full-time teaching the off-farm income to work on this farm because we were building this feedlot. So the feedlot site is actually Herbert's first settled here just over the road in 1873. We moved an older feedlot, smaller feedlot, over to a better site just over the road, probably 500 metres away. And that was probably the start of it. Andrew's thinking was that he'd been used to intensively feeding animals because he had a piggery 
We had a small cattle feedlot. We had a small farm. We had debt. We had three generations. What do we do with the asset that we have, which is the land? And I think all of those just rolled into let's build a bigger feedlot. We also had people interested in feeding cattle with us and we also had contracts. So again, all of those aligned so that we could build this feedlot over time, stock it with other people's cattle because we couldn't afford to build and stock and then to begin uh, providing grain-fed beef and committing to those contracts, yeah. So that was in 2001 that we first put cattle in. Those next steps of just sitting down and really assessing what you've got and where you want to be, that was really important. Yeah, and it was also part of the succession planning in that Andrew started to take more management control of the business about that time as well, and this was something he was interested in doing. The other issues that we talked about at the time was we were pretty keen to be a local employer. We are also pretty keen to provide markets for producers to sell their grain and their cattle into. There's work being done on the value of an intensive industry sitting near a small town and the value that that provides back into the local economy is pretty significant because it provides jobs and markets and all those sorts of things. How did you literally go look, we want to get big or bigger. Yeah, what was that really like, that driving force, I guess, or that the first step that you took to go? That was probably Andrew. He was quite determined to get this done. He could see it working and it did. And then over the years, stocking, but it's also a gradual process. So we built this feedlot, we stocked it with other people's, we custom fed cattle and then over time, those custom feeders exited and we wanted to own cattle because custom feeders can at times go in and out of the market depending on what their margins are like. So we wanted to own cattle and be full all the time, just like a motel. You need people in those rooms. We need cattle in pens to make it work because you've built the infrastructure for it. We sit in a funny place in the industry in between the corporates and some other large family feedlotters. We're at the lower level of Family feeders, feedlotters probably now. At one stage, we did own three feedlots, one in Canamble in the north with a business partner and then the feedlot in the south that we sold that settled last week. But over time, again, we've made the decision to concentrate just on this feedlot and the land that we now own around this feedlot as well. In the sort of hierarchy of feedlotters, yeah, you guys sort of sit around the middle of that family farm. So the last time Beef Central does a thing on the 25 lot feeders, we were, I think, 18, 18th biggest, but that was a few years ago now. My final question for those that have listened before is probably what's the big issue in Australian ag at the moment? I know with your industry work, you might have maybe one of the more interesting answers for my final question. I don't honestly think I can pin it down to one thing. Yeah, right. Give me a couple then. (laughs) Look, I think the sustainability work that I mentioned a a while ago is important. It's that connection with customers in particular. They are hearing a lot about us and they hear a lot about us without us being in the room. So we need to be there proving our credentials, showing them the data, telling them our stories. There are organisations and individuals who are influencers globally and in Australia who are giving our customers messages about our product and our production systems that we need to be able to address as well. So the industry frameworks that are starting to come out now, sheep, dairy, grains, beef, eggs, we've done theirs. 
I think the horticulture industry are doing theirs as well. All of those are countering that message but also telling the good story. It just seems at times to get missed. There's a lot of trust in who we are and what we do but we need to be on the front foot. I heard a good quote that the consumers don't know what they don't know so we've really got to help them along, don't we? We don't exist in a vacuum. There's people out there talking about us and we need to be talking about us. So those sustainability frameworks I think are really valuable and there's a lot of larger companies who are our customers who are now going, well, that's good. Industry's done this work. We trust industry because it is a lot about trust. We trust industry. They've got robust data. They can prove what they're saying. Therefore, I will continue to purchase their product. And those customers are the ones who are actually influencing the consumers. So who's consuming our product? If you're at point of sale in Woolies or Coles, or any supermarket and you're looking at the product, you're making purchase decisions based on what you've heard and the price you're looking at, obviously, too. And so we can influence those decision, that decision-making through our customers. So if our customers trust us, they can be filtering that down to our consumers as well. I think that's a big one for me at the moment, but there's a lot of other emerging issues as well. Because we, yeah, we really want to avoid a certain 7.30 report on someone else. We want to avoid stories like that in our industry, don't we? That's right. And even if we can't avoid them, because I think they may come out, we need to be able to be really prepared spokespeople for the industry and to have that data and to have a collection point for that data, to have really engaged producers who can tell their story and to talk about the work they're doing and how they're producing red meat or canola or whatever it is in a sustainable way. Because it's quite challenging to view a world where we would be just consuming highly manufactured factory alternative meat products when what you're replacing is ruminant that's part of a natural carbon cycle that exists in rangelands where you can't grow crops or plant any sort of plant or anything. They fit, ruminants fit naturally into that cycle and we need to keep telling that story more often about how good ruminants can be, not just for human health, but for the landscape as well. That's a great finish, I think, Tess. Thanks so much for joining me on Seeds for Success and thanks so much for telling your story. No, my pleasure. Thank you, Ron. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Tess Herbert. If you'd like to hear more from Tess, why don't you buy your tickets and join us at the Big Tech Big Ideas Field Day in Trangy on June 21st and the conference in Dubbo on June 22nd, where Tess will join our producer panel to discuss the benefits of technology for agriculture and in building stronger farm businesses. The link to tickets can be found in the show notes or search Big Tech Big Ideas in your favourite search engine now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. 
I'm your host, Narrily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time. <laughs>